Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 1 through 18, the entire chapter. I have chosen to entitle this section, this chapter, this way, Paul's persecutions and the Corinthian temple of God. The first half of the chapter is not tightly connected to the second. The first half of the chapter deals with Paul's defense of his apostleship, and the second half of the of the chapter is Paul's exhortation to moral purity for the Corinthians, and that's why he talks about the Corinthians being a temple of God. You don't put idols in a temple, you don't defame a temple or defile a temple with sexual immorality and so forth. Our context is this, chapter 5, Paul has talked about being an ambassador of the reconciliation that is in Christ, reconciling God with man. And so we begin now with 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, Paul says, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace, don't receive God's grace in vain. Now notice that Paul says he's working together with him, with Christ. He's not working against Christ, and he's working. Spreading the gospel is not fun and games. As we'll see in this chapter, Paul underwent horrible difficulties trying to spread the gospel. To me, he's an absolute hero. I, I just don't know how else you can describe the man. He's a hero. But he worked with Christ, and of course he doesn't work by himself, because you work by yourself, you're going to fail. He is always working with Christ. He never talks about his own working without mentioning Christ immediately behind it, behind his statement. He has confidence, but it's confidence in Christ. He's, Paul says to the Corinthians, don't receive God's grace in vain. The NIV Study Bible points out that one way you can receive God's grace in vain is to live for yourself, quoting 2 Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Well, maybe that's so, but in re- in general, receiving God's grace in vain is a Christian who gets saved and says, we, I'm saved, now I can just go out and do whatever the heck I want to. They get justified, but they don't get very sanctified. They don't understand discipleship. They don't understand what it means to follow Christ. And the Corinthians, of course, they were all saved because Paul called them brothers about a thousand times all through the gospel, all through the letter, First Corinthians letter. So he knew they had received God's grace. They were justified, but he's saying, look, don't go on with your sins because otherwise you just, you're just wasting the salvation that was given to you. And their sins were many, of course, suing each other in court, abusing the Lord's Supper, dividing up into factions, abusing spiritual gifts, not exercising church discipline against somebody who's sleeping with his stepmother, denying the resurrection of the dead, on and on and on and on and on. Paul's saying, look, you guys received God's grace, and now you're blowing it, so don't do that. It doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation, by the way. Now, you notice when Paul says he's working together with him, with Jesus, he is not working as a co-equal with Jesus. He's working as a subordinate with Jesus. He doesn't say that, but of course that's what he means, because we, when we work with Jesus, it's always he's the superior partner in our synergistic joint effort. That with him, working together with him, as John Gill points, I could either be working with God or working with Christ. It doesn't matter. It's not clear. Second Corinthians 6, verse 2, for he says, I'm assuming this is Jesus. Well, actually, this is God, because he's quoting, this, this passage comes from Isaiah. For he, God, says, I heard you in an acceptable time, and I helped you in the day of salvation. Look, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now, that's a direct quote from Isaiah 49, verse 8. I say direct. It's a close quote. This is what the Lord says, Isaiah 49, 8. I will answer you in a time of favor, and I will help you in the day of salvation. 
I will keep you and I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land to make them possess the desolate inheritances. Now, this day of salvation that's described by Isaiah, what is it? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that the image is from the desolate state of Judea during the Babylonish, Babylonish, Babylonian captivity. And so Isaiah, speaking about a century and a half before that exile and return of, of the Babylonian exile, which was in 586 B.C. is when it started, the Lord says, I'm going to, I'm going to fix you up. I'm going to appoint you, answer you in a time of favor. I will help you in the day of salvation. The salvation will be the return for the land, which was, I think, 537 B.C., if I remember correctly. And so Paul is using this, ancient, this Old Testament terminology about redemption, coming back from exile, Going back to the land, that's the day of salvation. And, of course, that's the perfect Old Testament type for coming into the church because the church is our salvation now. So now is the acceptable time, and that, of course, is, well, of course, Paul is saying it's now the acceptable time. The day of salvation was the time of the new covenant between the first and the second advents, the time of the New Testament church. Isaiah just says, I will answer you in a time of favor. It wasn't now. Paul adds the now. And so Paul particularly applies the day of salvation to the day of to the age of grace between the two comings of Christ, the first and the second coming. Now, in saying that, that is not to deny that Old Testament saints also receive grace and salvation. He's saying that, look, we New Testament saints, this is the day of our salvation. But he's not denying that Old Testament saints receive grace and salvation. This deals with that thorny question of did Old Testament believers believe? And I think they did. They believed by faith. Here's an example of a scripture that shows that. John 8:56. your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. So Abraham saw the day of salvation, the day of Jesus' day. John 8:56. Hebrews 11:13. these all died in faith, these faith heroes mentioned in Hebrews 11. They all died in faith without having received the promises, but they saw them from a distance. They saw the promises, the promises of salvation. They were kind of fuzzy, long way off. They saw them from a distance and greeted them, those promises. King James has they embraced them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. So they knew that their earthly blessings in life were temporary. They were looking for a city without foundations the eternal kingdom of God. So the day of salvation is just one of the many metaphors for the age of grace, the times of the church, the new covenant. Why does Paul mention this here? Well, I guess he's trying to just give them some general exhortations about, hey, this is what God's done for you. He saved you, so how about act like saved people? Now Paul goes into a defense of himself against his critics. In Corinth, he says in Verse 3, 2 Corinthians 6, we give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the minister will not be blamed. Now, what stumbling could Paul be talking about? Well, I don't know. He lived a blameless life as the NIV study Bible. Nobody could accuse him of anything. They tried, but he could defend himself very easily. And one of the ways he refused to give an opportunity for stumbling is that he refused to take money from the Corinthians. So nobody could accuse him of greed. And, of course, he didn't sleep with his secretary, and he didn't do all the other stuff that people do. He lived a blameless life. His sincerity and purity, as he's going to say here. No stumbling. He does not want the ministry to be blamed at all costs. I wish TV evangelists would meditate upon this verse. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul continues, But as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties. Now, this is what Paul's letter of recommendation. He doesn't have a letter of recommendation, but this is how he's going to commend himself, by just pointing out all the 
garbage he went through in order to get the Corinthian church established, as well as other churches. That's how he commends himself by what he's undergone through the gospel. That's the perfect answer to people who complain about him being too short or he's, he's not articulate enough. Now, he mentions afflictions. We're going to look at some of this more closely in just a minute. He's already mentioned afflictions a couple of chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-12. through 12. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Of course, carrying the death of Jesus in your body, that means the wounds that Jesus bore. Jesus, uh, Paul had similar wounds in his flesh. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 4, For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Paul died so that the Corinthians could live, assuming that's not sarcastic there. He's saying, I'm dying. I died so that I could get you guys established in eternal life. Well, that's a good letter of recommendation, Corinthians. All right, so Paul's mentioned hardships, difficulties, as well as afflictions as a recommendation. Now, Paul's mentioned this commending himself again, and he's kind of defensive about it because it sounds like he's bragging. He doesn't want to brag in his own flesh. Well, he's mentioned his commending himself to the Corinthians in chapters 3, chapters 4, chapters 5, and here in chapter 6. So here's chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Paul had just said something I forgot at the end of chapter 2 about his love for the Corinthians or his ministry that was without reproach. And he says, oh, oh am, I, am, am I trying to brag about it again? Are people going to start accusing me of being boastful? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Indeed, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. So that was another way Paul recommended himself to the Corinthians. He was open about everything he taught and everything he did. There was nothing secret, nothing shameful, and he appealed to their conscience. You know your conscience, Corinthians. Can your conscience really tell you that I've done anything evil in your church, that I've done nothing but good? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. He's saying, look, I'm not bragging about my ministry. It's just that I need to because these people who are attacking me are going to snooker you, and I don't want you to be snookered, so here's some defense against what they're saying. I want you to be proud of me. I don't want you to listen to their calumnies and accusations. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 5-8. through 8. Paul continues with his commendation. By beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the message of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, as deceivers yet true. Now that's quite a mouthful. Those several verses, Paul mixes in mentions of difficulties and, and persecutions in with positive works of the Holy Spirit, all in the same passage. And I guess that makes sense because they go together. When things are really rough and your flesh is getting pummeled, that's when the Holy Spirit is more likely to produce a lot of good fruit. Well, okay, let's take some of these one by one. Paul says he's commended by beatings. How many times? John Gill says three times he was beaten with rods. 
Five times he was whipped by the Jews with 39 strokes. You know, the Jews were allowed to give 40 strokes, but they only did 39 in case they miscounted. They'd want to break the law while they're beating the mud out of whoever they were beating. Let's look at some scriptures about his beating. 2 Corinthians 11, 23-24. Are they servants of Christ? He's talking about his opponents in Corinth. I'm talking like a madman. I'm a better one with far more labors. He was talking like a madman because he was boasting, and, he, and he, he, it was, he thought it was crazy to have to boast, but he had to. I'm a better one with far more laborers, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. So Paul is appealing to his persecutions as a, as a defense against his critics in Corinth. Paul, Luke mentions in Acts 16, verse 23, this is in, on the second journey, after they had inflicted many blows on them, this is in Philippi, I believe, after they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. And one of those who was thrown in jail was Paul the Apostle. So he'd been beaten plenty. And imprisonments, he says, I'm commended by imprisonments, Second Corinthians eleven twenty three. I am a better one, a better servant of Christ with far more labors, many more imprisonments. So there are a lot of imprisonments we probably don't even know about. I know that we don't know about. With far more labors, he says, including working with his own hands to keep from burdening others in Corinth, as Adam Clark points out. So many more labors than these these pseudo-apostolic critics of Paul. By riots, you remember the big riot in Ephesus when the preaching of Paul and his fellow workers made people start throwing their silver idols away, and that hurt the silversmiths, and they started a riot in the Ephesian amphitheater there. Fortunately, Paul Paul didn't go into that riot. That amphitheater is still there. I saw it, and I'm shocked. I didn't know it was still there in Ephesus. It's a big, big, huge amphitheater, and they were having rock concerts in it until, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago when Elton John had a rock concert there, and all of the music damaged the foundations, and so they don't do that anymore. Great historical site. But at any rate, Paul, there was a big riot there, and Paul almost got nailed. He says, by labors... I've already mentioned labors. Uh, he, by knowledge, he is another one of his calling cards, his recommendations to the Corinthians. In addition to purity, his knowledge, that could be book knowledge or scriptural knowledge of the Old Testament. Paul knew an awful lot. He was trained as a rabbi. It could also mean spiritual knowledge that he got through revelation, the mysteries of grace. By patience, patience is, is another word for endurance. KGV has long suffering. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, love endures, love puts up with a lot. Paul had to put up with a lot as he broadcast the love of Christ to those churches on his missionary journeys. By the Holy Spirit, he's commended to the Corinthians. John Gill says that could mean that the Holy Spirit helps in giving Paul grace as he works, grace to endure. Or John Gill says that it could mean gifts of the Holy Spirit. By gifts of the Holy Spirit, he committed himself to the Corinthians. In other words, by doing miracles, for example, or maybe prophecy or something like that. In sincerity, Paul's sincerity appeals to the Corinthians and commends himself to the Corinthians. As opposed to phoning hypocritical, quote-unquote, love, as John Gill points out. That's the kind of love that the false apostles were trying to tell the Corinthians that they had for them. He commends themselves by the word of God's message, which is the gospel, which he preached. He commended himself by power. In other words, lots of people got saved and ministered to. There were signs and wonders and miracles, as John Gill points out. So that was another way he committed himself. 
And he said he committed himself in glory and dishonor. And this is typical when the gospel is preached. Some people love to hear the good news, and like violent, they try, like violent men, they try to take it by force. And other people say, you're nuts. You're crazy. Some receive the gospel and some fight it. We need to remember that. Not get too discouraged when people start saying, oh, I got better things to do. I want to make a lot of money. Glory and dishonor through slander and good report. That's the same thing as glory and dishonor. As deceivers yet true. Now, here Paul might be referring to the his opponents who were deceiving the Corinthians about Paul and, and slandering Paul's character. Now, Paul mentions he's still committing himself to the Corinthians through weapons of righteousness on the right hand and the left. Sounds like he's fighting unrighteousness Rambo style. Weapons left, weapons right. Of course, that recalls Paul's famous quotation, his famous passage to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. This is why you must take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith and with it you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Notice how positive and how confident Paul is, is that the devil ain't going to touch anybody that does this. Also notice that the sword of the Spirit is an offensive weapon as well as a defensive. Most of these armaments that Paul talks about in this passage, this famous passage, they're mostly defensive. Armor on the chest, head a headpiece of right, helmet of righteousness, those are defensive. Sword of the Spirit could be defensive too, but it, a sword you usually think of it being offensive. And in this passage in Corinthians here, Second Corinthians, verse seven, it's weapons in the right hand and the left. That sounds a lot more offensive than defensive to me. Weapons of righteousness, weapons that will produce righteousness as rebellion against God is destroyed and people bend their knee to God. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. As unknown yet recognized, Paul still continued to describe himself and how he commends himself to the Corinthians. He commends himself as unknown yet recognized. Well, he was unknown to men. Now, he was not unknown to God, of course. God knew who he was. But to men, as far as Paul's birth and parentage and his connections, nobody knew who he was anymore, especially since he left Jerusalem in his big shot rabbi's position and Sanhedrin position. Now he's just a wandering quack, wandering around on the fringes of the Roman Empire, teaching some nonsensical message about a man who came out of the grave. He was unknown to men, but he was recognized because he was recognized by God. That's one option. He was recognized by God. It could be he was recognized because he was preaching openly, doing nothing in a corner, and, became, and he became well-known amongst the people in the Roman Empire because of his preaching. And I suspect that was, they're both probably true recognized by God, and some people were starting to recognize him as a force, but a lot of people didn't know who he was. And again, I'm thinking he's referring to these fake apostles in the Corinthian church. They didn't recognize him as dying, and look, we live. Now, dying, I think he's talking about physically dying there. He, Paul was constantly exposed to disease, death, and persecution. Here's some scriptures, Second Corinthians 1, verse 9. Indeed, we personally had a death sentence within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. I think he's talking about he was close to death at some point there. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. 
I am a better one with far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, near death many times. Labors, imprisonments, beatings, and he was near death, which is our point here. He was dying, yet he lives. He was near death. Now, let's talk about him living. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 11. We always carry the death of Jesus in our bodies so that the life of Jesus, the life of Jesus, may also be revealed in our body. Paul talks about death, but life comes right after it. For we who live are always given over to death. Now, there's the eternal paradox of the Christian life. If you're going to live, you've got to die. Your old man's got to die. And your desires in this world have got to die. You can only care about Jesus and his kingdom and all this other stuff down here that everybody lusts after. You can't care about it. You don't care about it. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus. Second Corinthians 4 verse 11. You're given over to death because of Jesus so that Jesus' life may be revealed in our mortal flesh. You give yourself to death. Jesus will let you live. Truly live. Paul says we are being disciplined yet not killed. Well, Paul is committing himself to the Corinthians as being disciplined, yet not killed. Now, disciplined does not mean that God is trying to destroy Paul. Discipline is not the same thing as experiencing the wrath of God. Only unbelievers experience the wrath of God. We are safe from the wrath of God because of the blood of Christ, but we are disciplined. Psalm 118, 18, disciplined by the Father. Psalm 118, 18, the Lord disciplined me severely, but did not give me over to death. So discipline is not for the purpose of death. Discipline is for the purpose of growth, for correction, so that you may grow, grow better. Paul says he was grieving yet rejoicing. How can you grieve and rejoice at the same time? Well, I think a lot of times you grieve and then God delivers you from it and you rejoice. There's a season for everything. Sometimes we grieve, sometimes we rejoice. But Paul shows here that Christianity is no phony, super happy, smiling all the time religion. That's not the way it works. It's normal to grieve when it's time to grieve. What does that verse says? That if you grieve with those who grieve, grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes it's grieving time. It's unfortunate. Well, that's the way life is in this earth. Jesus grieved. He grieved when Lazarus, Lazarus died. Now, one more interesting thing here in this verse, 2 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Paul says that we are as poor yet enriching many. And this commends himself to the Corinthians. He's poor. And of course, he's talking about financially poor because Paul didn't have a lot of money, didn't have any money really. But he enriches many. Well, how is he enriching people? Well, he's enriching them spiritually, I think. And in, in I've studied Bible, and Adam Clark agreed with me on that, and I think that's true. Now, Adam Clark says, but he could also be enriching, enriching the poor financially. Now, this is an interesting sentiment from Adam Clark. Quote, the gospel, when faithfully preached and fully received, betters the condition of the poor. It makes them sober, so they save what before they profusely and riotously spent. It makes them diligent, and thus they employ time to useful purposes which they before squandered away. They therefore both save and gain by religion, and these must lead to an increase of property. I love these stories of these poor country boys that didn't have a nickel to rub together. Like Charlie, country Charlie Pride, he was a black sharecropper's son in Mississippi, didn't have two nickels to rub together, and ended up being a big country music star, making a lot of money. I love stories like that. I don't know if he's a Christian. He might be a Christian. I don't know if he is or not. Something about him makes me think he is. But anyway, there's lots of this, this, there's cases of where people, oh, well, I just know of another guy who grew up poor in Kentucky, and now he's multimillionaire because he worked hard and he knows what he's doing, made a lot more money than a lot of people. I like it when people do that. 
So Adam Clark might be right. You know, you, John D. Rockefeller, he was a Christian. He was very tight with his money when he was young. He disciplined himself. He budgeted himself. He gave away a tenth of every dime he made. And he gave, and then he's, when he started making money hand over fist, becoming rich, he started giving it away like crazy. Of course, he's slandered by the snuts in the history departments who write letters talking about predatory capitalism and all this kind of nonsense. But he was a good businessman. He was a Christian guy, and he gave away a lot of money. Well, but I don't think that's what Paul means when he says he's poor yet enriching many. I think he's talking about enriching people spiritually by giving them news of salvation, messages of grace. Now, let me just, since I've got the verses collected here, let's talk about, let's look at what the scripture says about money. Luke 12:15. Jesus then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Hear, hear. Luke 12:21. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's, it's not a good thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus that by him you were enriched in everything in all speech and all knowledge. There, Paul talks about riches not being financial, but by spiritual riches in all speech and all knowledge, which of course might refer to spiritual gifts, gift of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23. So no one should boast in human leaders, for everything is yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Everything is yours. Everything is yours. It means everything spiritual, not material. You don't need to have a lot of money to be happy in this life. Ephesians 2, 7. So that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The riches of his grace. Their riches is referring to spiritual riches, not financial riches. Ephesians 3.8, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah. Again, spiritual riches. Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now that could apply to spiritual riches, but I think in that context it's referring to financial riches. So you see, both are riches. Spiritual riches, financial riches, God loves to give them both to you when you need them. Colossians 2, 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. 1 Corinthians 1, 5, so that by him you were enriched in everything and all speech and knowledge. I think I might have already read that one. I have. So there you see that when Paul says that he is enriching people, he might not be enriching them with financial prosperity, but he is, by golly, he's enriching them with all kinds of spiritual riches, which are worth their weight in gold, if I might use a physical metaphor. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. We have spoken openly, openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. You are not limited by us, but you are limited by your own affections. I speak as to my children. As a proper response, you should also be open to us. Now, Paul's being pretty direct here. He says, come on now. Tell it like it is. Tell me how you really feel it. I've been open with you. I've told you everything about my motives, my drives, and everything I've done, my actions. I haven't done anything in secret. Now, this, of course, is opposed to the false teachers who have opposed Paul. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, 2. Instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, Paul says, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message. And, of course, the strong implication is his opponents are doing just that. They're walking in deceit, they're distorting God's message, and they are engaged in shameful, shameful secret things. And Paul's not doing that. He says, we are commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. We're not hiding anything. We're frank. We're sincere. We're not tricky. 
We're not devious. We're not sly. An open display of the truth in 2 Corinthians 4 and here in 2 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13, our heart has been opened wide in verse 10, I should, in verse 11, I should say. Our heart has been opened wide. We have spoken openly to you. We're not hiding anything. We're not, there's nothing, we have no secret agenda. Now he says, you are not, you are not limited by us. In other words, as John Gill says, you Corinthians have not been brought into any kind of strait or difficulty by our actions. We don't fill you with anguish and trouble, but you do have anguish and trouble because you're limited by your own affections. You have anguish and trouble because you're having affection for these false dodo birds who are going out and slandering me every chance they get. You're limited by your own affections because your affections are in the wrong place toward those people, and also your affections toward me are limited. They're too small. You don't have enough affection for me. When Paul says you're not limited by us, he could mean, as John Gill says, that Paul is not limiting the Corinthians by causing them trouble, but he, he could also be saying you're not limited by us in the sense that you are not limited in the amount of affection we give to you. We don't limit our affection for you, Corinthians, but you're limiting your affection for me. And then he says in verse 13, I speak as to my children. Now, the my is not in the original Greek. The my is provided in the Holman Christian Study Bible with brackets around it. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that you really need to put the my in the verse because that's what Paul means. Because if you leave it out, it sounds pretty insulting. If you leave it out, it would say, I speak as to children. I speak as to immature little children who don't know their right elbow from deep center field. But no, when you say, I speak as to my children, then it becomes an expression of affection. My children. And Paul had the right to say that because he started the Corinthian church, he and his fellow apostles. And therefore, they're his spiritual children. And you always have a special place in your heart for your spiritual children. We go now to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says this, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Now, this is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. That's an unusual translation. Here's some more common translations. The NIV and the Montgomery New Testament say, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. The KGV has, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The Mace New Testament says, do not associate with infidels. The New American Standard Bible says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what, we continue in verse 14, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6 what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Now, this is one of my favorite verses because it's used with people who are contemplating marrying unbelievers, which has got to be the dumbest career move anybody ever made. Just in the last several months, I had five young Chinese Christian girls. They have a hard time finding husbands because 70 to 80% of the Chinese church is women. It's a terrible imbalance. So they're constantly tempted with finding a non-Christian husband and I had five of them tell me they were going to do so. Five in the space of about two weeks. And I wrote them all a long email, and I quoted this verse. I said, okay, you're going to do this, and you don't care what the Bible says, what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul says. Jesus said, if you believe me, you believe my Apostle. And here's my Apostle saying, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but you're going to marry a non-Christian. That is stupid. Of course, they, you know, so I doubt if any, any of them even listened. Well, if you are young and unmarried by any chance and are, listening to this audio, please don't marry a non-believer. That is the worst thing you can do. The absolute worst thing you can do. Here's a quote from John Gill. Though believers would do well carefully to avoid such an unequal yoke, since oftentimes they are hereby exposed to many snares, temptations, distresses, and sorrows. 
I'm old enough to know a lot of people my age who've married non-Christians, and I know their horrible marriage situations and how sad everything has turned out. I remember particularly a girl, in fact, I wanted to marry this girl for a long time, but she was not a follower of Jesus, she believed, but just, you know, she's a CEO Christian, Christians on Easter, on, Christians on Christmas and Easter only, CEO Christian. She was uh, one foot in the world, one foot out. Lady Claire, all Christian only. God knows for sure. But at any rate, so uh, she didn't listen to this, and she married somebody that, uh, well, he's drunk, adulterer, runs out all the time on her. Her kids, one of her kids turned out to be a dedicated Christian. The other kid's into demonic stuff. One kid shot himself up with steroids, blows his heart out and dies. You know, you, you, you make your decisions, you pay for them. Don't be unequally yoked. Now, this verse doesn't say unequally yoked in marriage. It, it it applies more than that. It can be a business partnership. It could be anything. Don't get yourself involved with unbelievers. In a type, the more intimate the partnership is, the yoking is, the more danger there is that you're going to be called on to compromise your faith. Now, if it's just something like, well, let's go play tennis with an unbeliever or something, well, that's one thing. But if you get involved closely, and, mar- and what's closer than marriage? Gosh, nothing could be closer than that. And you're going to marry a non-believer that doesn't care about your Jesus? That's the stupidest thing that one could do. Because there's no felt partnership between righteousness and lawlessness. There's no fellowship with light and darkness. And you marry somebody that's walking in darkness, then you brought darkness into your life and into your home, and you're going to pay a price. Now, what is the original metaphor? Where does it come from? Do not be unequally yoked or yoked in an unequally fa- an unequal fashion. Deuteronomy 22.10 says this, You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Why is that? You yoke. The reason you have a yoke is so that the two oxen that are pulling will pull equally on the left and on the right. It spreads the, the force out between the two oxen so they don't pull to the left or pull to the right. They, they plow a straight furrow. Well, if you put an ox and a donkey together, and that's unequally yoked, the ox is going to pull stronger on one side, the donkey is not going to pull it strong, and the fur is going to be crooked, and you're going to have a disastrous farm situation. So, that's a, it's an excellent metaphor. Here's a scripture in Deuteronomy 7.3 where God tells the Israelites to not marry with pagan neighbors. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Well, if the Israelites were told not to marry pagans, the old Israel, doesn't it make sense in the new Israel that the new Israel is not supposed to marry with pagans either? You would think. Now, let's talk about how this verse can be misused by being over-applied. John Gill points this out. He said, well, let me, before I do that, let's talk about what else it could mean besides not marrying people. It could just mean it in, in general. Don't get too tied up with unbelievers in general, and I think I think it is the verse does not say marriage. It doesn't explicitly say marriage. I think it's an easy application to talk about an unequally yoked marriage. But there's another option that John Gill and Adam Clark mentioned that Paul could be talking about joining with unbelievers in acts of idolatry. Because, for example, in first Corinthians ten fourteen, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry, but more particularly in verse sixteen, which is two verses later, Paul says this, and what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? That's the same thing as what agreement does light have with darkness, and what fellowship does light have with darkness, what fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness, and verse 16, and what agreement between God's sanctuary and idols. So that could be talking about don't get involved with idol worship, Corinthians. I think that's reasonable. But at any rate, it doesn't matter. It's so easy to apply to lots of situations, not just marriage. Now let's go to how the verse can be overused, over. Applied. John Gill says we should 
that verse does not mean don't have social intercourse with unbelievers. In other words, I'm not going to ever talk to an unbeliever because they're evil and I'm not going to be unequally yoked. That is not what Paul means. And we can show that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5 verses 9 through 10. Paul tells the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Verse 10, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Verse 11, but now I am writing you not to associate anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. So he's saying you're going to have to deal with sexually immoral people when you go out and do your business, do your work in the world. That's okay. That's, that's the world. But when you come together in the church and you tolerate sexual immorality in the church or greed or, or idolatry or drunkenness or revilingness or an embezzler or a swindler or whatever it is that you're tolerating, you're not doing church discipline and you're associating with them, well, now that's a different story because now you're profaning the temple of God, which, God is, which Paul's going to get to in a minute talking about the temple of God. You're defiling the church. So we've got to be careful. To me, fundamentalist Christians have done very well about keeping immoral people out of the church, but they then apply it to the world as large, and they, and they basically say we've got to go out of the world, we've got to create our own unique fundamentalist subculture, which doesn't last. People can't live like that. On the other hand, the other extreme is wussy-pussy evangelicals who allow, it, like, what's his name down there in Atlanta? I'm not going to mention his name, the guy that lets homosexuals in the ministry of, the, of parking cars and and, and so forth and any other uh, church that just completely allows adultery to go on won't say anything because the adulterer's given a bunch of money to the building fund and that kind of thing. That's the other extreme. We're supposed to be tight in our associations within the church, and we're going to have to tolerate some ungodly people outside of the church because we cannot go out of the world, not yet. We go now to verse 15, 2 Corinthians 6. Paul continues, Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Again, he's continuing with this point about don't be unequally yoked. I mean, you know, Belial is a term that from Hebrew that's used to designate Satan, as the NIV Study Bible says. It's only used in the New Testament here, as John Gill says, but it's used in many other places in the Old Testament. So basically what Paul is saying, what harmony has Jesus with the devil? Not much, none at all. And what is a believer in common with the unbeliever? I'm telling you, not much, nothing spiritually. They might have some interest, common interest, and they might like NASCAR racing or something. But when it comes to the ultimate things in life, you don't have anything in common with an unbeliever. So why would you get in a close association with a non-believer, like marriage? Here's some relevant scriptures about lack of harmony between good and evil, God and the devil. First Kings 18 verse 21 then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. You got one choice, Yahweh or Baal, but nowhere in between. How long will you hesitate? Which way are you going to go? Ephesians 5, 6, and 7, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their Partners. Why would you want to be partners with somebody who's walking around with the curse of God on their heads, the wrath of God on their heads? Why would you want that? They're going to end up destroying their lives. Jesus said they built their house on a sand. That When the inevitable rains and storms and winds come, the house is going to be destroyed, and you're going to be in that house with them, and you're going to get destroyed too. So don't become their partners. 
Don't become partners with the disobedience. See Ephesians 5, 6, and 7. Ephesians 5, 11. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, you're married to a non, let's say you're a Christian sister in China, and you're married to a non-believer, and all of a sudden that non-believer starts going around, starts doing a little drinking, a little gambling, get a little desanjia, a little, little, little honey on the side, you know. But you're not going to tell anybody because that will cause you to lose face with your family. How are you going to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness, the fruitless works of darkness? How are you going to expose them if it means embarrassing your children, embarrassing yourself? Because you're compromised. You're in a compromised situation. Don't do that. Don't get in any compromised situation if you can help it, whether it's work or family. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing, and I will welcome you. Now, this, of course, is the fundamentalist favorite verse. But just because people overuse the verse doesn't mean that we should not have access to that verse, too. That verse is mine as well as the fundamentalist. Come out from among them and be separate. I don't want to go to church with a bunch of adulterers. I just don't. Because what will happen is adultery will start being condoned. And I don't want adultery to be condoned. Be separate. Don't have anything to do with that nonsense. In the church, it's talking about it's not talking about if you have an adulterous co-worker, you have to work alongside the adulterous co-worker. Do not touch any unclean thing. That's talking about ritually unclean. It comes from the scripture, Isaiah 52:11. Leave, leave, go out from there. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. The Levitical priest, the Levitical workers had to be clean when they touched the vessels used in the sacrifice and such. And so they weren't supposed to touch any unclean, clean, any unclean thing. Because if they did, then they became unclean and they couldn't minister in the house of the Lord. And so Paul is saying, look, you want to be clean and minister into the house of Jesus in the New Testament church, you better not touch any unclean thing and become defiled yourself. So Paul is using an analogy of the physical Levitical laws in the Old Testament and applying it to the New Testament and say, you touch any unclean thing like adultery, swindling, drunkenness, reviling, and all the things he mentioned, sexual immorality. You do all that kind of stuff and you become unclean and you just defile the temple of God, just like an Old Testament Levite could do the same thing by touching an unclean thing, like if he touched a snake or something. So don't do it. Come out from among them. Of course, the Corinthians, of course, were living in the midst of the most horrendous immorality, ritual prostitution on a massive scale, sexual immorality everywhere. So Paul says, come out, be clean, be separate from, those, from your Corinthian culture. We go now to our last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, Paul is referring to the Old Testament here when he says that God will be a father to the Israelites. And, of course, he's referring it to the new Israelites, the church. 2 Samuel seven fourteen, God says this, I will be a father to him, to Israel, and he will be a son to me. Israel will be a son to God. When he does wrong, I will discipline him, discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. Jeremiah 31, 9, they will come weeping, but I will bring them back with consolation. I will lead them to wadis filled with water by a smooth way where they will not stumble. For I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So God tenderly calls Israel his son, his firstborn son, and he says, I am your father. So God promises to be a father. And what is a father known for? Power, strength, and protection, as well as love, tender concern for. You will be sons and daughters to me, and we're going to be all one happy family. How? Touch not the unclean thing, <laughs> as, as the King James have it. 
has it. Stay away from immorality. If you want God to be your father, he's going to, you know, you're going to expose yourself to all kinds of judgment and chastisement if you live immorally. So don't do that. Don't do that. Come out and be separate so God can be your father because God is holy. He doesn't, he doesn't hobnob with unholy things all the time. All right, Paul has used Old Testament terminology, Levitical terminology, to talk about touch not unclean things or you'll mess up the temple. I skipped verse 16, which I didn't mean to do, where Paul explicitly talks about the temple. He says in verse 16, And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? I mean, how stupid would it be to try to put an idol in the, in the temple? The emperor, Roman Emperor Caligula tried to do that. He was contemplating doing that. He was talked out of it. I forgot who it was that talked him out of it. I think it was Josephus that talked him out of it. But at any rate, he was about to stick an idol in in the temple, and there would have been bloodshed. There would have been all hell would have broken loose, man. The whole city would have uprooted in an uproar, uh, blown up in a riot. So it's because it's stupid to put an idol in the temple with God's sanctuary. For we are the sanctuary of the living God, and that's where the Corinthians are now called the Church of the Living God. This is the church now, but this is a sanctuary, despite the fact all of their horrible failings in Christian sanctification. For we are the sanctuary of the living God, as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So we've got to remember, as much as the weak church is weak, and I tell you, you look at the American church and you just say, oh my gosh, what hope is there? But they, but the, those weak Christians, they are God's sanctuary, God's temple. That's where God lives, and he's going to be their God. He's, they're going to be his people, and he will be their father. And that's what hope we have when we look at all the evil that's in the world, and there's plenty of it these days. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I hope you enjoyed this audio. We now prepare to go to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we will see Paul continuing his defense of his apostleship and spiritual fatherhood of the Corinthians. And we will hear about the repentance of the Corinthians, about Titus's encouragement of Paul as he returns from visiting the Corinthian church. Paul is now in Macedonia, remember, writing the letter of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is going to be in a better mood now. So I hope you stay tuned for that audio. And I hope you enjoyed this one.